What do you think? All of a sudden, purpose is going to show up at your front door and say, I'm here. No. That's Joe DeSena, accomplished endurance athlete, New York Times bestselling author, and the founder and CEO of Spartan. You've got to get out in the arena. You got to bump into people. You got to be in the fight every day. You'll meet something, you'll see somebody, whatever it may be, and boom, you're doing it. I'm Michael Mogul, founder and CEO of Crisp, the nation's number one law firm growth company. I've built my business through practice, not theory. Crisp started with just $500 to my name and has grown to over eight figures in revenue over the last few years, earning a spot on the Inc. 500 list of the fastest growing private companies in America. Our approach has been to take everything we've learned about generating massive growth within our own organization and help the country's most ambitious and committed law firm owners do the same for theirs. In each episode of this podcast, I sit down with innovative market leaders from the legal industry and beyond to learn from those who thrive in the face of adversity, challenge the status quo, and define what it means to be a true game changer. I sat down with Joe DeSena to discuss the role of personal accountability in achieving success, how to cultivate a mindset of resilience and perseverance in the face of adversity, and why doing hard things is the secret to happiness. When I go to bed, I giggle in bed. As soon as I get horizontal, I giggle. It's a funny response, but the reason I giggle when I reflect on it is I worked so hard, I'm so tired, that I'm so happy to be laying down. So if you're laying down at night and you can't get to bed and you're tossing and turning, you didn't push hard enough. That's coming up on the Game Changing Attorney Podcast. Before we begin today's episode, I want to remind you that we aren't beholden to any sponsors or run any ads on this podcast. This allows us to present all of our episodes raw and unfiltered. I'm not going to push any made-to-order meal services on you or try to save you any money on your car insurance. That being said, I have one small request. If you receive any value from this podcast, please give it a five-star review. Pay the fee so we can keep this podcast free. All right, Joe, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. It's so nice to know that somebody wants to listen to me. This is fun. Uh, well, all on social media. I mean, obviously you've been on TV. You do a ton of keynotes, but let's go ahead and get right into it. I mean, is it just me or does it seem like society is getting softer these days? I mean, I saw a video recently. You were talking about the fact that we're in the middle of a complacency epidemic. What do you mean by that? Well, when's the last time you ran down an antelope? Think about how long we've been on the planet as a species. Think about every passing generation. You could watch any movie that takes place early 1900s, mid 1900s, early 1800s, and you can see the difference between the way we lived as a species then and the way we live now. It's no surprise. At the end of the day, we all want to make a living, so we sell each other stuff that makes our lives possibly easier, simpler, more satisfying. And every time we buy those things and we sell those things to each other, our lives become easier. Look, the worst one, this is it right here, the phone. The phone is a disaster. When I was young, I actually had to find a pay phone. It could be two blocks away. I had to walk two blocks. Then if I didn't have a quarter in my pocket, I had to go find the quarter. I had to get changed. Maybe I walked another block to get changed. And by the way, a few generations before that, there was no pay phone, right? And a few generations before that, there was no car. Like, we were horseback. So, like, we are living in a smaller and smaller comfort bubble every day to the point where we get upset 
if the Wi-Fi is not working on an airplane that is traveling 600 miles per hour at 30,000 feet. That is upsetting to us. We are crazy. I'm just going to rant here. The number one motivator for a human being, number one motivator, it's not sex, not drugs, not rock and roll, not food. Number one motivator for a human being is the avoidance of discomfort. That's legacy hardware and software kept us alive on the planet. Make sure we don't go out and freeze to death or sweat to death or fall off a cliff. We avoid discomfort at all costs. The brain senses discomfort and says, oh, time out, relax. Check your phone. Don't go do that workout. Drink your coffee. Don't go outside. It's raining, right? We don't even know that's happening. And so our citizens, the folks around us in our communities sell us stuff that helps us potentially avoid discomfort, right? Six-minute abs, five-minute abs, four-minute abs, chocolate cake that's not going to get you fat, Netflix you could tune into for 12 hours a day. And it's interesting because to your point, as we have more and more of these comforts that do make our lives easier, we've got air conditioning, you know, all, all this stuff. At the same time, one could also argue that as a society, we've never been more unhappy, right? There's never been greater instances of anxiety and depression and all these things. And yet you have more comforts than ever. It almost seems like it's an innate part of the human condition to almost need a degree of like earned dopamine, right? You actually seek out adversity in some sense. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm going to try my best to explain this. So I, I've been thinking about this for 42 years. I started 42 years ago. I had a, a kid next to me. I used to clean swimming pools at a very young age. And the kid next to me said he was depressed. And I didn't even know what that word meant. I was like, I don't even understand what you're saying. We have work to do today. And certainly there are people that have chemical imbalances or they've got biological situations. But most of the folks that are depressed are depressed for the reason you just said, which is we haven't done the work. Imagine a whiteboard. Imagine you and I had a whiteboard and imagine we drew a horizontal black line on that whiteboard and that represented your life. And then we drew another black line that represented my life. And anybody listening can draw a line representing their life. And that life, however we live it, is what we consume. Uh, the work we consume every day, the, the food we consume, the marriage we have, that's that line. That represents where we are in life. Now, all of us, all of us are chasing more. We want to move up the board. We want a little bit nicer car. We want a nicer house. Some of us want a better spouse. We want better kids. Whatever those things are, we're chasing. If we only had more, if we could only move the line up, we would be happier, right? We're never happy though, because it's never enough. As soon as the line moves up an inch, we'd be happier if it went up one more inch, two more inches. It never stops. It occurred to me that the reason I'm always happy, although some people don't think I'm happy, the reason I'm always happy is because I go in the other direction every day. I go below the line. I take stuff away. I start suffering as soon as I wake up. And then when I get back to the line, when I walk back in my house and I have a wife and children, and they're healthy, and I have a meal, I'm like, well, I'm not doing burpees. I'm not taking a cold shower. I'm not running 20 miles. Like, this is pretty nice. And so unless you're really, really hungry at times, right, you're not going to enjoy the thing you're eating. I saw a great movie I saw on a plane the other day called The Menu. You guys got to watch it. It's a crazy movie. There's a scene, there's a moment just like in any movie, right? Any visual, you see the chef cutting this piece of chicken. It looks juicy. It looks good. 
where my mind went right away when I saw it was, and this happens all the time when I see imagery or movies about food, is the food tastes so much better when I think back to those moments where I was like hungry for two weeks straight, going across Alaska in waist deep snow, 30 below temperatures. When I finally had a meal, a piece of chicken like I saw in that movie, that was the best chicken I ever had in my life. It could have still had feathers in it. Blood could have been squirting out of it. It was the best chicken I ever had because I was so damn hungry. And so here's a great story. You want to hear a great story? My kids and my friend's kids, we decided to go for a hike, I don't know, five, six years ago in Squamish in, outside of Vancouver. And me and my buddy take the kids up overnight, way up in the mountains. It's a crazy night. We're not prepared because it started out a very wonderful spring day that turned into a snowstorm. And it was crazy. We almost ate one of the children to survive. But anyway, when we came off the mountain, the kids wanted to stop at a Wendy's, which was unacceptable to me. We had to drive the extra hour to Vancouver and go get healthy food. But they broke me because for 24 hours they'd been out. We'd been on this hiking expedition. It was a matter of survival. And so I stopped and I said, everybody gets one small order of French fries. We had six children. My son tripped after we got the French fries and the French fries fell all over the floor of this Wendy's. Well, these six kids, my kids in there and their friends, dove on the ground and started eating the French fries off the floor. They were the best French fries they'd ever had. 48 hours earlier, if somebody would have touched their French fry on the table on their tray, they were, I can't eat that. My brother touched it. My point is, get yourself really hungry every day and you'll enjoy every morsel of your life. And it seems like doing hard things is the is the secret to happiness, right? Not material possessions or anything like that. But for somebody who's listening, and I love your perspective on this because I know you're going to roll your eyes as soon as I ask this question. Some people might see toughness or mental toughness as some sort of an innate quality. But I imagine you were not this way from birth. No. At the end of the day, we are all really tough at birth. And then we get coddled. We get told what we can and can't do. We get fed in our little cages in our zoo with climate controlled cages and food on demand. How the hell would we be practicing tough? We don't need to do anything. We don't have to hunt an animal. We don't have to walk to get to a phone. We don't have to do anything. How would we possibly be practicing tough? But yet we practice cooking, we practice piano, we practice academics, right? But we don't practice tough. And then we're expected in life when the shit hits the fan and everything's up against us and we're facing obstacles, we're expected to perform. But you've been sitting in your cage in the zoo. You haven't done anything hard. How would you possibly perform when you face the obstacle? So what would be some steps to practicing hard? For someone to, to want to get started, they want to challenge themselves, what would you recommend? I know, I know you do cold showers, I've done cold plunges. It seems like you were actually doing those before it became popular. You were doing it years ago. Yeah, my mom, thankfully, my mom found all this stuff back in the 70s. She had a very forward-thinking Indian guru that she met. And so all this stuff she was pushing back in 1972, 73. And I grew up around it. I pushed back on it. I didn't. I thought it was all hokey and ridiculous and crunchy. But later on, I embraced it. Look, you've got to manufacture some adversity in your life. If this was 1,500 years ago and we were doing this podcast on a cup and a string, I would be saying, we need more penicillin, we need more couches, we definitely need an invention called Netflix so we can relax a little because life is tough. We stand in horse shit every day, 
we're getting attacked by our enemies, like we need a softer life, but that's not the case for us in the first world. And so I'm certainly not asking you to check yourself into a prison. I'm not asking yourself to row a rowboat across the Atlantic, but do you think you could wake up early and maybe go sweat and breathe heavy? Could you muster up enough energy to like at least take care of yourself and earn your breakfast, right? Could you get in a cold shower? Because for most of our existence on the planet, we didn't have hot showers. We had cold showers. There's a ton of biological benefits to a cold shower. Could you knock that out and suffer a little there? Maybe put your phone away for an hour or two, suffer there. Maybe skip a meal. Could you do that? So like, I'm not asking for a lot. You're not joining Shackleton's expedition and getting stuck in the ice for two years or climbing Everest with Sir Edmund Hillary. So like, yeah, manufacture a little adversity in your life and stop complaining because nobody cares. I think a lot of the resistance is perhaps I think too few people have been on the other side of that. So I imagine it's probably rare that somebody runs a Spartan race and turns around and says, well, I really regret doing that, right? It's, it's usually probably filled with like joy and achievement and high fives and things like that. Same thing with a cold shower or even if you're, you're jumping into a, you know, a cold tub of water or anything like that. My daughter who sees me do this in the morning, she always asks me, she says, Dad, do you enjoy that? And I don't know if my answer is that I enjoy it, but I feel great afterwards. So what would you say to that, that those who just haven't experienced the other side of adversity? We had a tagline for a long time. We still use it here and there. You'll know at the finish line, right? You'll know when you get out of the cold plunge. You'll know when you get out of the cold shower. You'll know at the end of the burpees. You'll know at the end of the Spartan race or the Tough Mudder event. If you came home and your dog was sitting on the couch watching TV, smoking a cigarette, painting her nails, and putting her hair in a bun, that would seem a little strange, right? Dogs don't do that. They're animals. If you came home, on the other hand, and your dog was chasing a bird in the backyard and running through the mud, completely out of breath and starving, and ha- like you'd say, oh, okay, that's a happy animal. That's the other side of doing something hard. Look, if you're listening to this and you're completely happy in your life and it's optimal and every day you've got a kick in your step, you're full of enthusiasm, it can't get any better, you've got tremendous gratitude towards everything and everyone around you, keep doing what you're doing. But the numbers and the data show otherwise. The numbers and data say we're sick, we're depressed, we're fat, we're eating shit food, like time to change. What was the catalyst for you? I mean, I I recall in a former life you were working on Wall Street as an equities and derivatives trader. It seems your lifestyle was very different then. What what was the catalyst for you in this evolution? Well, mom, back in the early 70s, right? Mom found this, she pushed it. She introduced me to a 3,100 mile foot race in Queens, New York that still exists today called the Transcendence Run. You run around a one mile loop 3,100 times. That was the beginning of the exploration. But then without much knowledge, I signed up for something ridiculous. I did the Iditarod by foot across Alaska. Normally participants do it with dog sleds and I didn't have the dogs or the sled. It was 30 below and it was waist deep snow and almost died out there and felt so alive that I could actually remember. I actually have this instinct of feeling alive and having tremendous appreciation for food because I remember how hungry I was. I remember how cold I was, right? Listen, I I was telling somebody yesterday, when I go to bed at night, my whole life, when I go to bed, I giggle in bed. As soon as I get horizontal, I giggle. It's a funny response, but the reason I giggle when I reflect on it is I worked so hard, I'm so tired, 
that I'm so happy to be laying down. So if you're laying down at night and you can't get to bed and you're tossing and turning, you didn't push hard enough, right? If you're eating a meal, think about when a child eats a meal and they're complaining about the broccoli, they're not hungry enough. They're not hungry enough. They didn't earn that meal. Because if they're hungry, they'll eat their finger. I know, <laughs> I've been there, right? You need to earn these tremendous gifts we get in life, a bed, food, a cold shower. It's a gift. I still want to revisit this perspective because my wife, she gives me a hard time about this because I say I need to earn everything, right? I need to earn this meal. I'm going to earn this nap. If we're going to watch this show, this Netflix, whatever it is, like I'm going to go do something to earn. And she's like, why do you always have to earn things and, and do it that way? And for me, it brings me gratification. I don't know if there was a point in my life where I decided to do things that way, but what do you think separates people who approach things from that perspective versus those that just indulge? I don't think they know any better. I think, like you said, I don't think they've ever gotten a taste of the finish line. I don't know if they've gotten a taste of what it feels like to just be so happy with what you've done and so relaxed with what you achieved, right? So unless you've gotten a little taste of that, how would you know? If you grew up in a traditional household these days and you're not consuming great food, you're eating a lot of processed foods, you're complacent, you don't know what you don't know. You're not pushing that hard. You don't know what you're capable. Like, how would you know? So I pushed my wife pretty hard. When we met, she came out and did a bunch of these races with me and it was awesome. She got them done and look, she thinks I'm nuts. And she did this stuff with me. And she's like, I don't understand. Like when, when do we finally get to relax? When do you stop turning the hot water heater off in the house? because it's a little ridiculous. When do you stop pushing the kids to speak Mandarin? Every day, it's exhausting. I don't know. I, like if I didn't squeeze the most out of life, if I didn't push really hard, I'd have regrets. And for me, regrets would be worse than the upfront pain of actually just doing the work. And you're not alone. It seems like even just with the community and even the movement that you built behind you know, the Spartan, I'm curious, like what led to the first not just Spartan race. I know the first, like, I guess, death race, like the desire to create something of your own. Well, again, I had done these events and I felt so damn alive and I would rope people in. I'd lie to them. I would tell them to come up to our farm in Vermont and I would say, hey, we're having a barbecue this weekend, knowing full well that they were going to be the ones being barbecued, wake them up at 5 a.m. And why are we waking up at 5 a.m. for barbecue? Well, I got to carry the barbecue up to the top of the mountain. Could you help me? And I just loved it. And afterwards they loved it. And I thought, wow, could we turn this into a business? Could I actually have a life where I do this every day? I change lives, I torture people. I make them the best versions of themselves. Could I actually do this and make a living? I've yet to prove that I can make a living doing it, but I have been able to prove that there's a lot of people out there whose lives we can change and you feel good when you do it. What would you say are some of the underlying philosophies or, or mindsets just behind Spartan? I mean, the main philosophy is stoicism, right? Can you just do a lot more with less, not complain, fight through, or just get it done each and every day in a very simplistic form. That's it at its core. We help each other. We look out for each other. We do the right thing. doesn't matter what religion you believe in. You're going to be a good person. I think we have empathy for others. And I think we understand others more when we suffer ourselves. We suffer together, 
you get eight, 10,000 people out to an event and we suffer together, the science is clear that we get a lot more of those wonderful chemicals released in our brain because we're doing it together. I'd love to actually elaborate on that because the suffering together, I want to talk about just like building and leading teams for a lot of the people listening, they're business leaders in their own right. And I've read the same thing that those that suffer together, if you're doing something difficult, whether it's a tough mutter or just even something within the business and they're doing launching a difficult campaign, solving a challenging problem. If you're doing it with somebody else, you build a degree of camaraderie. What advice would you give people who want to build a better culture, a more cohesive team? Well, you definitely want to do something hard together. And if you set that hard out into the future, what ends up happening is that team works together, working towards that hard thing is, so you get to talk about it, they get to strategize, they get to train together, they build tremendous relationship leading up to the event. Then they go to war, they battle together, they come out, they've got shared stories. I was with my buddy yesterday on Saks Fifth Avenue, he had 200 salespeople together in Miami and they were doing like a boat trip and couple of days of talks and I thought it'd be so much less expensive and so much more powerful just to have them all come out and do a Tough Mudder or a Spartan or a death race or something. Like it would be so incredible. And we do it for the Nikes. We do it for the Facebooks. We do it for the Goldman Sachs. All these big companies will come out to the farm. So we know it works. We've been doing it forever. Military knows it works. Military has been doing it forever, right? You take a bunch of people, they suffer together. They come out as one unit. Yeah, it's like, uh, I think in your book, Spartan Up, you talk about the concept of obstacle immunity and the idea that facing challenges, overcoming them, you build resilience and you become better equipped to handle future challenges. So running a Spartan race, there's the physical and mental component there, but I imagine that also impacts people in, in other areas of their life. No doubt about it. I mean, listen, it's not if, it's when we are all going to face some obstacle. We're, we die ourselves. People around us die. Businesses fail. Marriages fail. We gain weight. We drink too much. We take drugs. Like stuff's going to happen. It's guaranteed. The question is, are you equipped to deal with it? And we sell the equipment. That's what we do. We sell the equipment to help you deal with life's obstacles. And speaking of difficult, how do you differentiate between difficult and desperate? Because those are two different things. There's a long way in difficult before you hit desperate. I learned the hard way. I, I was out in, in an event in Switzerland exhausted. I laid in the snow. I had nothing left in me. I told my teammates, I said, leave me here. And I meant it. I was done. And somehow I mustered up the energy to do another eight days. You hear stories of the marathon monks in Japan. They do 800 days carrying a sword and a rope, 25 miles a day, 800 days. We're capable of a lot more than we think we are. And there's a long way to desperate, long way. Yeah. And also I think difficult is oftentimes subjective. What's difficult to one person is quite another. I've heard you use the expression, and this has always appealed to me as an immigrant myself, but it may not be PC, but just I've heard you say work like an immigrant. And there's differences between what is difficult to one person versus another. No doubt about it. I mean, depending on how you grew up, depending on how you live your life, you've got a different perspective, a different frame of reference, and you will tap out much later than somebody who was coddled on Park Avenue, silver spooned throughout most of their life, right? They're gonna tap out much sooner. So that goes back to why we should practice hard, why we have to create some adversity in our lives. Again, 
it's not like you're checking into prison for a 25 year bid. It's not like you're fighting in World War II. You're not on the front lines of Ukraine. So we're not even asking for that much. Skip a meal. Now, what would you say to someone who's hearing this and they're like, you know what, I want to sign up for a race or I want to do whatever that is, even taking a cold shower, but they're like, I need to get in shape first. You know, I need to prepare first and then I'll do it. Good luck. You're not going to do it. The only way to achieve optimal health, race-ready health, ready for anything health, is to sign up for something hard first. And then that demands your excellence. That demands you go to bed early, you wake up early, you put down the cookie, you don't drink. If you do it the other way around, you'll never get in shape because you would have been in shape already, but you're not because you don't take it seriously. None of us take it seriously. But as soon as there's a date on the calendar, you get serious. We have a wedding business up in Vermont. Brides and grooms show up, they book the venue. All of a sudden they start training. They wanna look great in photos. Why weren't they training before? Because now they got a date on the calendar. If you don't believe me, why do you need professors at universities? Why don't the kids just go into the library and study on their own, take their own tests? It doesn't work, right? Why do you need a foreman on a construction site? Why don't all the men just show up, do the work, get the job done on time? It doesn't work that way. What are some other ways, I mean, you would say just to make something like this inevitable? Obviously, sign up, pick a date, perhaps make it public, put your name, maybe your reputation on the line, like, because... I mean, maybe I'm sick and twisted in this, but I, I almost try to create situations where even things I may not want to do, I try to make them inevitable by telling enough people, signing up, making it public, so then there's just all those forcing functions, if you will. No doubt about it. The death race every year, in the early years, 18 years ago, every year, 300 grandmothers would die right before the race. Sorry, I can't make it. My grandmother died. It was really unbelievable that all these grandmothers would die exactly at the same time. And so then we said, look, you have to go public. You have to go public in order to participate in this death race. You have to get something written in a newspaper, radio, something we approve. All of a sudden, grandmothers stopped dying. All of a sudden, people started showing up and getting it done. So yes, going public is a huge motivator. Getting the date on the calendar, huge motivator. Having folks to your left and right they're gonna hold you accountable, huge motivator. Without those hacks in place, you're gonna stay on the couch. You're gonna be watching Netflix, eating popcorn. Yeah, I think so many people are worried about looking good while doing it. It seems like by the time you're at a death race, nobody cares. <laughs> we have the race end of June this year. I'd love to have you and your whole tribe out. It's on me. End of June, love to have you on the farm. Go public with it if you want. We could even give you like just a taste of like an appetizer of the death race if you want. You'll absolutely love it. A lot of fun to be around folks that are trying to push past their limits. I love it. I love it. Interesting thing about this, as soon as you mention something like this, there's the people that are enthused, right? I'm already excited. And then there's those, they start to sweat. They start to get nervous. It's right away, they just, they heard the name. They don't even know what's the story, what's involved. I guess if you could give some examples, I'm sure there's been people that have participated that. They're not the fittest people on earth, right? They're not like Matt Frazier, five times world's fittest man. Like if you just give examples of the types of people that participate in these. It could be a skinny entrepreneur, an older gentleman. It could be a mom. It could be a guy or gal missing a leg or an R, it could be a green beret, it could be a 17 year old kid. Gets all sizes and shapes, very much like an airport, just a, a swath of the country's demo. And it's the person 
with just a no-quit attitude that just gets it done. One foot in front of the other, they just get it done. I love it. And yet at the finish line, everybody's just united by the fact they did something difficult. It was more difficult for some than others, but they all got there. They all got it done. So then I guess this transitioning to the other generation, I, I know you, you've got your recent book out just in terms of raising resilient children. This is one that I personally have struggled with because, you know, when I grew up, growing up in low-income housing, it's, you know, I joked with my parents, they didn't really have the opportunity to spoil me. But as you overcome those, you know, even for a lot of the people listening to this podcast that have achieved certain levels of success, it almost goes against their initial desires of creating discomfort for their children. How do you get over that? How do you develop unbreakable kids? We all should be holding hands and agreeing that the next generation is softer than the previous generation. And that's been going on for the last thousand generations because they've had the benefit of their parents taking care of them and making it a little easier and paving the way, which we shouldn't do. The biggest threat to our children is a six-car garage, right? It's that overindulgence, that ability to be complacent. And so our job as parents is not only to make the children become appealing and fun to be around, but also resilient. Also have a ready-for-anything attitude. And it's hard. Even a person like me who knows it, and my wife and I set out to do it, we still find ourselves without even knowing and reflecting back on it, removing obstacles. And instead we should be putting obstacles in front of the kids. We should be making it harder. I'm pretty hardcore relative to other parents, but I still see the mistakes. I mean, if I'm making those mistakes, we're all doing it. Yeah, it's like, I mean, an example, last night, one of my daughters, she's four years old, it's time to go upstairs, go to bedtime. She's like, dad, will you please just carry me up the stairs? And of course I can do it, but I say, hey, how about this? You give me 16 steps, okay, and I'll carry the rest of the way. I think there's like 18 steps, right? And she just gets started. That's it. We get 16 done. She feels great, and I'm only doing two steps to a degree. There's certain compromises. Again, it's hard for me with daughters. I think I don't know if it's different with sons, but it's important to do it. But you know, at the same time, when you travel, do you stay at the Motel 6? Yeah, definitely fly in the back of the plane. I'm not a fancy hotel guy at all. Definitely get up early and do the workout with the kids. If there's a trail or some hiking stairs or a mountain nearby, we got to always knock that out. Bad weather, we're going outside. Any chance I get, disconnect the hot water heater. So just every chance you get, you got to throw obstacles in front of them, make it harder. Oh, so then, okay, so then they get older and even this younger generation, there's been so much talk about them struggling to find purpose, to find meaning. And I believe you're a big believer in fire ready aim, if you could speak to that. Look, I, I think it's ridiculous and a sign of the times that we're sitting around trying to find purpose and meeting. Why don't we start by figuring out how to put food on our table? And if we can cover our bills and we can move out of our parents' house and we can take care of ourselves, then we've met a bunch of people. We've shown ourselves and others around us that we're capable human beings. Then we could start finding stuff that's fun like I did doing Spartan, but like to not do anything, to sit around and think and waste time and not do, what do you think? All of a sudden purpose is gonna show up at your front door and say, I'm here. No, you've gotta get out in the arena. You gotta bump into people. You gotta be in the fight every day. You'll meet something, you'll see somebody, whatever it may be, and boom, boom, you're doing it. And if it's not exactly what you want, well, then you're gonna bump into it later in life. Cause that's what happened to me. 
I had many iterations till I found this. Yeah. And even I think one of the early iterations you mentioned is just in the uh, in the pool business. So going back to that, I believe you work with the mafia, but you learned, I think, some important business lessons in making yourself irreplaceable. Well, my neighbor was the head of a banana organized crime family. He gave me three lessons, great lessons. He said, Joe, on time is late. You're going to get here at 8 a.m., get here at 7.45. He said, number two, you got to go above and beyond. If I tell you to clean the swimming pool and I'm paying you to clean the swimming pool, I want you to clean the lawn furniture, straighten up the shed. When I come home, you got to make yourself so damn invaluable that I'll never get rid of you and I'll recommend you to everybody I know. And number three, never ask for money. Do a good job. You'll get paid. Unlikely lessons from a mob boss, but they stuck with me. And I've used them as guiding principles throughout life and they work. It's interesting how those just continue to remain true through life. The last thing I want to come back to is just doing hard things. And I'll give examples. Sometimes in the morning, I'm staring at my shoes for 20 minutes. You know, I'm not going to deny that that happens. And I've heard you use the example to get tactical that, you know, it can help to name your brain. So when you're internally having that, almost like that negotiation with yourself of saying, well, let me get a cup of coffee first. Let me do X, Y, Z first. I should wash the dishes first. What are some tactical ways to do hard things? A couple of ways I've learned over the years. One is you can negotiate with yourself and say, all right, look, I'm going to go outside and start walking and then we'll stop at the store and get coffee as opposed to holding up progress and getting started, right? So I'm not going to do the 300 burpees. I don't feel like it. Okay, Joe, just do 30. 30 turns into 60, 60 to 90 before you know it, you get the 300 done. So you can lie to yourself. The second thing is you could name your brain. You could have a conversation with yourself. Let's say your name, your brain's name was Frank. Hey, Frank, I'm going to grab coffee. I don't really feel like getting out on the road. been staring at my shoes here for a while. Frank says, I don't think today's the day. I think today we should just go back to bed. You work it out with Frank. You say, Frank, I, I made a commitment. I got this race coming up. I want to stay healthy. We're getting married. I want to look good in photos. Whatever the thing is, Frank. Sure enough, you're about to go out the door and Frank jumps in again. Frank's got another thing to say. Frank wants to stop you because remember, the brain does not want to be uncomfortable. That's your chance to say, hey, Frank, we already had this discussion. We already worked it out. We'll talk after the workout. And I know it sounds silly and it sounds fun, but it works. It works. So one, you can lie to yourself. Two, you can have a conversation with yourself. People may think you're nuts if you're having that conversation out loud, which you don't have to, but it works. Have you seen like almost like this time between making a decision and then doing the act? I'll give you an example. In the morning, every morning when I do this cold plunge, it's rare that I ever want to do it, but I have this timer that once I hit the bell, right, it's almost like Pavlov's dog, I get in, right? So it's almost like once I hit that button, my body just starts moving, I start getting in. What is that? It seems like there's something behind that. We do need cues, right? It could be the coach's whistle. It could be the opening of the curtain in a play. Whatever it is, the cues will get you standing at attention and getting you going. So you can work on those to help set a deadline to make the move. For me, you know, with the cold shower, count to three. And I mean, once I hit three, you know, I'm honest with myself. I don't compromise. I say that over and over. I think about if people would think I'm a fraud, if I don't get in the cold shower right now, I know I'm going to feel better. Just do it. The only bad cold shower, the only bad workout is the one you don't do. 
I was just going to say, I love the mindset of, well, they think I'm a fraud. And it's, it's funny you mention it as you're about to go in the cold shower because there's no cameras, there's nobody watching, right? There's no one to know whether you did it or not. But then you have to live with it for that day, just knowing like whether you, you compromised or not. And, and, you know, I think another thing is like sometimes you have a thought, I don't know if it's a gift or a curse, but a lot of times it happens while working out or while running. And if I have a thought of like, you know, let's go another mile, right? At that point, even if I don't want to do it, I'm like, I guess we're running another mile. So... <laughs> <laughs> we added something cool at our races, an extra mile. And so you come across the finish line, you get your medal, you get your banana, it's over. You did it, you did your work, high five. But now there's an extra mile to do it. And most people don't want to do the extra mile, but there are some that do. And we just introduced it. And sure enough, thousands, literally thousands of people for no reward, go out and do the extra mile. And it's special. There's really something special about that. I mean, we've been talking about it for generations, right? Those that go the extra mile. The power of, uh, of one more. Do you have any specific things that you practice on a daily basis that just keep you engaged, keep you motivated and focused? I know you mentioned the cold showers, but anything else that you do just on a consistent basis? Wake up early, go to bed early. Last night was a long night. I had to drive to Miami from Orlando with my son. We did a round trip, like 10-hour drive, go have dinner with a buddy of mine. But nine out of 10 times, I'm in bed by, you know, no later than nine, 9.30. I'm up 5.30, five. I'm religious about sweating. I'm religious about earning my breakfast. I'm religious about the cold shower. I'm religious about having a salad every day. And I'm religious about this idea that I get to do this. Like no matter how tough it is, I get to do this. Again, you think back to somebody that's in prison or not here or missing an arm or leg, they don't get to do it. So I don't want to blow that gift. How do you define success? For me, success is, this is going to sound silly, just being able to work every day. Just being able to get something done. Be productive. It's not money. Was I productive today? Am I able to be productive today? That's success for me. I remember I did this race and I came across the finish line so late. I was so slow. There was no one there. There's barely a finish line. There was some cold pizza on the ground. No fanfare, no medal, but it still felt great. And I think that's when I learned, I believe that's when I learned that like the journey was actually the finish line, right? Getting to do that was actually the reward. If anything, the finish line's a letdown, right? You wish you were still going. Mm-hmm. I heard the quote today. I don't know if it's like Tony Soprano or somebody else is saying that Remember when is the lowest form of conversation that two people can have and that this idea that, you know, you really should never peak, that the best is always yet to come. Best is always yet to come. So Joe, as we come to a close, this being the Game Changing Attorney podcast, uh, we ask everybody this, what does being a game changer mean to you? Game changer is thinking differently, getting outside your comfort zone. Just because somebody's done it one way forever doesn't mean we can't do it a different way. And if you're just following everybody else, you're a lemming. So think outside the box, hang a left, hang a right, go up, go down. Just don't follow the others. I want to give a huge thank you to Joe DeSena for taking the time to speak with us today. And I want to thank you, yes, you, for listening to this podcast and for your commitment to growing as a leader. If you found this episode valuable, here are three free ways that I can help you grow your law firm. Number one, download the first chapter of my book absolutely free at GameChangingAttorney.com. 
Number two, you can shoot me a text at 404-531-7691 and I'll answer any question that you've got for me. And finally, number three, if you can leave this podcast a five-star review, it'll help us gain access to more influential thought leaders and bring their lessons learned here to you. For more information on our interview with Joe DeSena, see the show notes for this episode of your podcast app or visit legalpodcast.com.